going to pray for the Lord's help in understanding and applying his word to our lives. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, it is good for us to be together on this day. It's always good when you gather us together in your house, but this is a special day. Thank you. Thank you for bringing us together today. Thank you for being with us today. Lord, this morning as we begin to think about the story of the birth of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, I am thinking of churches and people all over the world who are in harder circumstances than we are. I think of, I think of people all over the world who would, who would feel like their greatest prayer had been answered if they were just able to switch places with us, if they were able to be in a place where there was peace, if they were able to be in a place where they could freely gather to lift their voices and sing your praises and read your word, if they were in a place where our needs are provided for, we have food on our tables and warm beds to sleep in, and we recognize that many, many people around the world are not experiencing those blessings today. And so we pray for those who are in hard places this morning. We pray that you would be with them. We pray that by your spirit you would comfort them. And I pray, Lord, that this would be a day of hope for people in hard circumstances. We do thank you for the blessings that you have showered upon us. We do not take them for granted, but we return thanks and praise to you for all your blessings and all your gifts. And we are particularly thankful and mindful this morning of the gift of your Son, whom you sent to be with us and to secure our salvation. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, it is part of human nature to want to present the best version of yourself to the world. That's always been the case throughout history, but especially these days when everyone carries a camera in their pocket, there is a temptation to present a cleaned up version of our lives to perhaps give the impression to others that our lives are always awesome, when in reality, sometimes life isn't awesome. Sometimes life is just painful and messy. That's true for all of us. And sometimes we do this same thing when we think about the birth of our Lord. We tend to project onto that scene a sterilized, kind of made-up version on to the actual historical events. And so the scene that gets depicted or the scene that we picture in our minds is it's, it, we, we, we envision it as warm and cozy, clean, dry, well lit for some reason. Uh, there, are, there are well-groomed and respectful livestock standing around at a reverential distance just kind of waiting while Mary and Joseph both looking well-rested healthy, look lovingly together at their surprisingly robust and immaculately clean little boy. You know that picture, right? You've seen that picture. And then there's the, like, on the, on the, uh, that's the immediate circle. And then on the outside of it, looking in, there's these handsome, well-washed shepherds. <laughs> they stand in the background. And then 
And then on, on, on this same night, for some reason, here come the wise men as well. And they come sporting their royal robes. Despite the long journey on camelback, they decided to wear their royal robes and polished golden crowns on their heads with gold box, gold boxes containing their gifts. This year, I saw a satirical nativity scene that was specifically, it's satire, and it was, it's, it's intended to mock us, Christians, intended to mock our tendency to create a photoshopped version of the birth of Jesus. And so in this particular nativity scene, if you, if you want to look it up after the service, don't do it now, it's, um, it's called Hipster Nativity. You can buy it. it uh, in this scene, Mary is holding a Starbucks cup, and she's making this sign with her other hand. And Joseph is crouched next to her, holding his phone out for a selfie. The wise men are standing there with Amazon boxes. The sheep are wearing little red sweater vests. The cows are stamped 100% organic. There are solar panels on top of the stable to provide good lighting, of course. Uh, Obviously, no one thinks that Jesus' birth was like that, right? Obviously. But it's undeniably true that here in the West, we have a tendency to clean up the Christmas story and to forget that this whole blessed and wonderful story was also messy and painful from start to finish, straight way through. It was beautiful, it was wonderful, it was blessed, but it was also messy and painful. And so that's what we're going to be considering together on this beautiful Christmas morning. We're going to consider the beautiful, holy mess of the birth of our Lord, and then we'll think about how that mess relates to our beautiful, holy, messy lives today. So we're going to be following the story as told by Matthew, and we're going to hit some highlights, not the whole thing, but highlights from chapters 1 and 2. I have preached over the years from different little subsections of the story and focused in on different aspects of the story. Today we're doing kind of a flyover and hitting on the high points from the, the way that Matthew tells it from, verse, from chapters 1 and 2. So as you know, Matthew begins the, his telling of the story with a gene, genealogy, a list of names. And right from the start, by starting like that with a list of names, he gives us a clue as to how messy this story really is. Verse 1 says, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then comes this list of names. Now, this is not a list that's been touched up. It's not a list that's been photoshopped so that only the best branches of the family tree are shown. This is a messy list, right? This is like a, like, like a genealogy that includes all, 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 all the embarrassing branches from the family tree, right? Which we all have, right? So as you know, Matthew, in his listing of the genealogy, very purposefully and intentionally, includes four women in this list. Even though women weren't normally included in genealogies back then, Back then, typically, they just traced it through the male side. But Matthew includes four women. 
Now, in a previous Christmas sermon that I've preached, preached here at Ebenezer, I preached a whole sermon on those four women. I don't intend to do that this morning, but let's just briefly remind ourselves who these women are. First one is Tamar. Tamar is a Canaanite. That itself, just that fact, Tamar is a Canaanite, that would have been an embarrassment for those who are in the line of Judah because having a pure bloodline was such an important thing in that culture. It was so important to be able to trace your line and to have it have been pure people of Israel. But it gets worse than just that Tamar was a Canaanite. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law, but her husband died and left her childless. And so what she does is trick Judah into thinking she's a prostitute. And that's how the line of Judah is able to continue by Judah sleeping with his daughter-in-law. Now, if that is not a messy chapter in Jesus' family history, I don't, I don't know what is. Right? Matthew could have easily edited that name right out of the genealogy. But he doesn't. He includes that mess for all of us to see. The next woman in the list is Rahab. Rahab was also a Canaanite prostitute. She played an essential role in helping Israel defeat Jericho. Then comes Ruth. Now Ruth is a faithful and kind and hardworking woman. There is nothing about Ruth's character that would be a source of embarrassment. Nothing at all. She's one of the heroes of the Old Testament. But she is a Moabite, not an Israelite. And the backstory on the Moabites is that one time the Moabite women seduced the men of Israel. They invited the men of Israel to come and visit uh, to uh, attend the sacrifices to their gods. And as a result, the true God sent a plague on Israel and 24,000 Israelites died. Ruth is the great-grandmother of David. So that messy backstory of the infidelity of the people of Israel and of God taking vengeance on them and killing 24,000 of them, that all gets imported into the line of David, into the backstory of David's history, and therefore, it is the backstory of our Lord Jesus Christ's history, because he came in the line of David. And then in verse 6, we read, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been, had been Uriah's wife. And we all know who Uriah's wife was, right? That's Bathsheba. The story of David and Bathsheba, as you know, included such things as adultery, lying, and murder. All of that to say that the story of the birth of Jesus, it's messy, it's messy right from the start, it's messy even before the start, it's, it's, it's messy before he's even conceived. The backstory of his family history is messy. And Matthew makes no attempt to cover that up. Matthew makes no attempt to Photoshop the story and make it look good. In fact, he seems to be going out of his way to highlight the messiness, to call our attention, to remind us this is not a neat story. This is a messy story, and it's a messy story because it's a human story, and humans are messy. Well, after the genealogy, we get the story of the birth itself, and I'm going to read that for you, starting in chapter 1 and verse 18. It's brief. 
he packs it into just a, just a couple of verses, but it says this. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in his mind to divorce her quietly. Now, of course, we know Mary didn't do anything wrong. In fact, she did everything right. But there is no denying that this is a messy situation. The optics do not look good. The penalty in this culture for infidelity is death. And even if that punishment was rarely enforced, still, this unexpected pregnancy marks the end of her respectability in polite society for the rest of her life. Mary was betrothed to a carpenter named Joseph. Betrothal, as you know, was legally binding. And if for whatever reason you decide to call off a betrothal, you have to take legal action to undo it. It, 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 you have to go through the same whole process legally that you would go through in order to secure a divorce. It is a divorce, right? Which is why the word divorce gets used there. It doesn't say Mary resolved to break up, or Joseph resolved to break up with Mary. It says that he resolved to divorce her quietly. That's a huge deal. Divorce is a huge deal. Divorce is one of the most emotionally traumatic, painful, messy things that a human being can go through. And at this moment in Joseph's life, he thinks he's going to have to go through that. He doesn't want to, but he's going to have to. And Joseph is not a mean-spirited man. Presumably, he's heartbroken. How could he not be? He's heartbroken. It must have been so painful for him. When he discovered, or at least he thought he discovered, that Mary had been unfaithful. Mary's infidelity. How could, how could she do this? I thought we loved each other. I thought we were going to spend our lives together. I thought we were going to have a family together. And now this? How could she do this? But, but despite the heartbreak, he doesn't seek revenge he doesn't try to harm her. He doesn't try to shame her. He could. It would be very easy for him to publicly shame Mary, but he exactly doesn't do that. But just think about how much sadness and hurt, real human sadness and hurt, is contained in this simple phrase, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. That's a heartbreaking verse in the Bible. And as you know, the way the story unfolds, an angel appears to Joseph, explains the truth of the situation to Joseph, and he believes the story that's presented to him. And so instead of divorcing Mary, he takes her on a journey to Bethlehem so that they could be counted for the census that was being taken. Now that journey would not have been an easy one. I know these days we hear a lot of talk about how difficult and inconvenient travel is today. But that's a, that's a relative statement. <laughs> it's inconvenient today compared to maybe what it was a few years ago. <laughs> it's not inconvenient. Travel is not inconvenient today compared with the first century. 
I, I mean, I had my own travel adventures this past summer. Many of you were bored with hearing me retell the story of what all happened to us this past summer. It, it, it included many flight delays, some flight cancellations, waiting in the longest line of my entire life in the Toronto airport. I'm not kidding. It just kept going and going. We'd get through one room and think we were done, but it was a trick, and we would step into another room, even bigger, with an even longer line, and that happened three times, and then... Uh, we, we, uh, we finally got through customs, only to be just within an hour turned around and marched back the other way through customs because our flight was canceled again, spending a night in a, what I would call a very shady uh, hotel in a rough part of Toronto, telling my kids, don't touch anything, <laughs> don't, don't, leave the, don't leave the room. <laughs> we got a few hours here and we're going back to the hotel, or back to the airport. Finally, we ended up driving from Toronto to Milwaukee because that was way quicker than waiting for a plane. Now, if you've traveled recently, you probably have a similar story like that. That's just what it's like to travel these days. But that inconvenience is nothing, nothing compared to what Mary and Joseph would have gone through to get to Bethlehem. Uh, we don't know why, but we know that Joseph the carpenter is no longer living in an, his ancestral hometown. That's unusual. That would have been a little rare. Usually people stayed put. Uh, but for some reason, he's not living in his ancestral hometown. And so when there's this decree of the census that gets issued, everybody needs to go to their ancestral hometown. And that means a pretty long journey for Joseph and his wife. His wife, who is full-term with this very unusual pregnancy and could give birth any day. Now, how long of a trip are we talking about Nazareth to Bethlehem? How far is that? Well, assuming the route that they took bypassed Samaria, which would have been a good idea because that would have been an unsafe place for them to go, that would have been about 150 kilometers from Nazareth to Bethlehem. 150 kilometers Mary's about to give birth. Keep that in mind. When you're, when you're about to give birth, when you're like full term in pregnancy, I, 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 I've observed, I don't, I'm not speaking from experience, but I've observed that it's, it's hard to just get up off the couch and walk across the living room. <laughs> she, she needs to get up from Nazareth and walk to Bethlehem. Walk 150 kilometers, camp along the way, hope not to get attacked by bandits or soldiers as you go. And also, as I always like to remind us this time of year, if we are picturing Mary comfortably seated on a donkey, and we're picturing Joseph walking alongside and holding the reins, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with picturing that, but I just want for us to be reminded again that there is no mention of a donkey in the telling of this story in the Bible. Maybe, maybe out of pity, someone from Nazareth loaned them one. We don't know. But there's absolutely nothing about Mary riding a donkey in the Bible. That part of the story, if that's in your picture of it, you know what happened? That got photoshopped later because it makes for a good painting. Now we come to the actual birth. They got there. We're coming to the birth. Matthew doesn't have too much to say about that. He just says, she gave birth to a son. Typical guy. That's all he has to say about it. She gave birth to a son. What more do you need to know? Well, Luke fills in the picture a little bit. 
But we still have surprisingly few details about one of the most important events in human history. Most of the details that we have about this event have been filled in by the Christmas carols that we sing and by the nativity paintings that we've seen, which might have given us a slightly unrealistic picture of what that night was like. Now, if you're drawing a picture for me that you're going to show me after the service, now's the time when you've got to pay attention. We'll try to make historically accurate pictures, okay? So uh, we do know this. We know that Mary and Joseph are in some kind of animal room, a stable. So a common arrangement with the inns back then uh, was that we don't know that this is what they were in, but this would have been typical. A two-story building. The second floor is a public space for travelers, and the ground floor is where animals are housed. The animals generated warmth on the cold nights. The heat would rise and make the public space more bearable. So perhaps Mary and Joseph arrived in a place like this. They try to check in, but there's no room in the second floor, the human floor. And, but they are allowed to go downstairs and spend the night with the animals on the ground floor. So whatever you're picturing, if, if we're picturing this now, don't picture a well-lit stable that's freshly swept with nice fragrant straw, maybe some cedar chips sprinkled on the ground. Don't picture sheep with puffy white wool. Don't picture well-groomed donkeys. This is a first century animal pen. It was probably damp. It was cold. It was dark. And it was dirty. The place probably stank to begin with, and then you add to that the sweat, the pain, the blood, the cries, the smell of a real live birth of a real baby boy. And then you picture Joseph's rough carpenter hands trying to grab onto that slippery baby, trying to cut the cord with something that's probably not sharp and not clean, and then passing the boy over to his mom. Now, all babies are beautiful. We know that. But all babies are also pretty messy when they're born. Mary probably wiped him off as best she could with whatever rags and clothes she had and then swaddled him up and laid him in a feed trough. And that's how God entered the world. That is not a neat and tidy picture. That is a messy, messy picture. If, if, if we had an actual photo of that night, like not a cleaned up, artistic rendering, not a painting, but an actual photo. If you could see a photo of that night, what it was really like, I think it would break your heart. I don't think it would create warm, fuzzy, cozy feelings. I think it would break your heart. All you have to do, if you doubt that, all you have to do, imagine your own daughter giving birth in those dark, dirty, unsanitary conditions. I mean, my heart breaks just thinking about that possibility. I would do anything in my power to prevent that scenario. And yet, Jesus willingly, Jesus willingly entered into that mess. And not only was that scene more messy than we normally picture, it was also scary. It was messy and scary. I mean, birth itself is is beautiful, but but scary and painful. Uh, it, it, It can feel that way now. Today, even with modern medicine, it definitely felt that way in the first century. Scary. 
And on top of that, not only was birth itself scary, but it was a scary time to be, a, to be alive and to be Jewish. It was a scary time politically. Chapter 2 opens by telling us, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Okay, that, that locates us politically in the timeline. It was during the time of King Herod. Herod was one of those politicians that always put himself first, no matter what, and then everyone else came second. So paranoid was Herod about hanging on to his own power, so self-focused, so narcissistic, that he murdered his own wife, a woman named Marianne. Murdered her because he feared that she was a threat to his power. He also murdered his mother-in-law. I'm not sure why, but he just did. He murdered his mother-in-law. Her name was Alexandra. He also murdered three of his sons just because he feared that they were a threat to his power, to his throne. And he came first. And so if his sons are going to get in the way, then he'll take them out as well. In fact, Caesar Augustus once famously said, it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. So once this man realized that, uh-oh, now here's a potential rival to my throne. He's been born in Bethlehem. Herod is half Jewish. You know that, right? He's half Jewish. He's the one that helped construct the temple and, 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 and build it to, to all of its glory. Right? And he realizes, oh, wait a minute. There's somebody born that's going to be a rival to my throne, to my power. And so he did whatever was necessary to eliminate that rival, regardless of what sort of collateral damage and heartbreak his actions might cause. A man who will kill his own sons in order to protect his throne, will certainly not hesitate to kill someone else's sons in order to protect his throne. And that's what he did. So the Son of God was born into a messy political time with a murderous egomaniac sitting on the throne. And while it is true that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and he came to establish peace on earth, it is also true that in the wake of his birth, there was not universal peace on earth, but his birth was followed by horrific violence on earth. After the Magi visit the baby and worship him and present their gifts to him, they go home. They do not divulge the location of the baby to Herod. Herod realizes that he's been outwitted by the wise men, and he flies into a rage. We read in verse 16 that he gave orders to Kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who are two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Right? He's just, he's unhinged. He's such an egomaniac. He doesn't care who he hurts. Right? Kill all the boys. Two or under. I don't care. I recognize some innocent boys are going to be killed, but I don't care as long as we get this guy that's going to be a rival to my throne. Just kill them all. Now, I don't know why God allowed these kids to be killed, and you don't either. I can't imagine what it felt like for those parents. Those were real kids. This is not a pretend story. Those were boys with all their life ahead of them. Those were boys with parents who loved them. Good parents that did the do the things that parents do, right? Like, 
peeped in at their boys to watch them sleeping at night, praying for them. They were the joy of their lives, and those boys were taken from them and murdered. Why? Well, because the Prince of Peace has been born. That's a painful and messy part of this story that never seems to show up in the nativity scenes. So in order to avoid being killed by Herod's soldiers, this new family had to flee from their home country and become exiles in Egypt. Now that is a trip that took the nation of Israel 40 years when they were coming back the other way. So rather than settling in and enjoying their new life as parents, Mary and Joseph and Jesus had to go on the run like criminals. Home is generally thought of as a place of comfort and security, right? Exile is a place where things are strange and dangerous. Exile is the place where you don't fit in, where you're an outsider, and oftentimes in exile you're an unwanted outsider. You don't belong. You're a sojourner. That's a recurring theme in the Bible. Adam and Eve were at home in the Garden of Eden. They were safe and secure. They belonged. They were where they should be. They were where they were made to be. But they were exiled out of that place because of their sin. They became sojourners. The people of Israel were in the land of promise. They were at home there. They were where they belonged, where God wanted them to be. But over and over again, they were taken out of that place and they were exiled Because of their sin, they became sojourners. And now Mary and Joseph, through no fault of their own, not because of their sin, but they're on the run like criminals, and they're in exile, away from home, in exile. It's a recurring theme throughout the Bible, and the Bible actually talks about all of humanity, all of us, being in spiritual exile, You might live in your home country, but in spiritual exile, alienated from God the Father because of our rebellion against his holy law. We're supposed to be united with the Father and obeying his law, walking in the path of blessing. But we have rebelled against his law, and we are therefore in spiritual exile, alienated from the Father. And Jesus came to earth to bring us home, to bring us out of exile, and to bring us home back into right relationship with God, reconciled to God into a relationship that will last forever. But the process of securing our redemption and bringing us home, that was messy. We all know about the messiness of the cross, the messiness of the crucifixion, the death of Christ to pay for our sins. But this morning, we've been looking at how the story of our redemption was messy before the cross. The story of our redemption was messy from the very beginning. And the miracle of Christmas is that Jesus was willing to enter into that mess for my sake and for your sake. He didn't, he didn't call down from heaven, like, like look down over a cloud or something and I grab a megaphone and say, hey, hey, you down there. Hey, you all get yourselves cleaned up Get yourselves presentable, and then I'll come and pay you a visit. That's the opposite of what he did. He entered right into our mess. He looked, he saw it, he said, I'm going in. And he came right into our mess. 
the whole big mess of life in a broken world, he entered into it. And let's be honest, our lives are still messy. Everyone in this room. Our lives are still messy. I know we all clean up well on a, on a Christmas morning. I know we all look lovely. I'm looking at you. You look lovely. But I know that your life is messy and my life is messy because we're human beings in a broken world. The good news is Jesus is willing to enter into our messes. Now maybe the mess you find yourself in this morning is entirely out of your control. Maybe, maybe it's the mess of illness, the loss of a loved one, some other painful circumstance that you're dealing with that's been dumped in your lap that has nothing to do with you, that's not your fault at all, but it's just the situation you're in, and it's hard. Or maybe, maybe this morning you're in a mess of your own making. Maybe it's your own sin or your own poor choices or whatever that has landed you in a difficult and painful place, and you can't seem to get yourself out of it. You can't seem to get yourself cleaned up. The good news is, this is why Jesus came, to join us in our messiness. He didn't say, clean yourself up and come join me. He didn't say, I'll stay here where it's clean and safe, and once you're ready, you come. No. He said, I see you there, or it's messy and unsafe, and I'm going to enter into that. I'm coming to you. That's the message of Christmas. He joins us in our messes. Earlier this week, I, I, uh, I was reading about El Salvador, kind of fantasizing what it would, what it would feel like to live in a warm place. And uh, I learned, I didn't know this before, I learned uh, that there's a tree in El Salvador that's nicknamed the marriage tree. I don't know what kind of tree it actually is, but people call it the marriage tree. And it's called the marriage tree because it starts out in spring and it's beautiful. It has bright red flowers all over it and it's just stunning. It's beautiful. But very soon, very early in the season, those flowers wither and die and fall off and apparently the tree goes from beautiful to ugly in a very short period of time and that is why they call it the marriage tree. The implication being that marriage starts out very beautiful. There's a wedding, and everybody comes looking good and smiling, wearing their best clothes. It's a party. It's joyful. But humans, being what they are, have a way of making something beautiful ugly in a hurry. Now, I happen to know that that's not true for many, many marriages in this room right now. In fact, I happen to know that the opposite is true, that your marriages are beautiful, and the longer you're married, the lovelier your marriage becomes for many in this room. But I also know that there are some people who can hear my voice right now who are thinking that they know exactly why that tree is called the marriage tree. I know that there are people who can hear my voice right now who are in a marriage right now that's hard, just hard. Or maybe there are people who can hear my voice right now 
and who were in a marriage like that, and, and, and now it's done, and it's been broken, and it's not going to be fixed. And that is painful, and it's sad, and it's messy. It's messy. If, if anyone can hear my voice and, and finds themselves in a situation like that, I have two things to say to you. First of all, you're welcome here. You are received here. You are loved and respected, and you are safe here. You are with family here. And secondly, Jesus is ready, willing, and eager to enter into that mess and be with you in it. It's what he does. It's what he does is enter into our messes and be with us. Maybe that illustration is not relevant to you right now. But maybe there's some other part of your life that's broken or embarrassing. None of us is living a perfect life. None of us. All of us have messes. Areas that we would like to, be, to keep hidden because they're painful and we don't want to talk about it and because we're embarrassed and we don't want people to know and because we don't want other people to judge us. Right? You know what I'm talking about. You're probably thinking of an area in your life right now. We all have things like that. The good news of Christmas is that we don't need to cover up our messes. We don't need to pretend to be better than we are or more holy than we are or more perfect than we really are. God is willing to enter into our messes. And listen, he might not fix everything this side of glory, but he will be with us. He will be with us. That's the story of Christmas. God with us and God for us. God with us and God for us. For those of us who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been brought back from spiritual exile. We have been brought back from alienation from God and we have been reconciled to God. And one day we will return from our exile from the garden and we will find ourselves back in his perfect presence forever. And that is the blessed hope of Christmas. Let's pray together. Holy Father, Christmas is awesome and I thank you that this day is here again. And I thank you that we could gather. I thank you that we could wear nice clothes and come together, sit together, stand together, sing together, pray together, meditate on your word together. It's good, it's good to be together. I thank you for the food that we're going to enjoy later. I know many tables will be spread with rich food, joyful food, celebration food. We're thankful for all of that. It's a blessed and beautiful day. But I am also thankful that you are a God who is real. That you are a God who sees us for who we are and who loves us anyways. That you are a God who doesn't stand at a distance and tell us to clean ourselves up so that we are allowed to approach you. But you come to us in our mess and you say, you know what? I love you. And Lord, we love you too. Thank you for entering into the mess of the world, Lord Jesus Christ, so many years ago. And thank you for entering into the mess of our lives now. 
We're not perfect people, Lord, you know that, but we'll say it. We're not perfect people. There are things about our lives that are embarrassing and that we wish were different. Some of those things are our fault. Some of those things we had nothing to do with. But I thank you that despite that, that you are a God with. You are with us and you are for us. And that is our Christmas hope. I pray these things in the name of you, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.